As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show and our final batch of listener questions for 2022. On today's show, we're talking about the World Cup stars who might get big money moves this January, the virtues of the World Cup third place playoff game, and the USMNT's ultimate utility man. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who sent me a Christmas card with a mean message about England in it, Graham Ruffin. Hello, sir. <laughs> I mean, it was purely for the mean message about England. That was the reason I sent it. It wasn't any kind of Christmas sentiment in there, Ryan Bailey. Well, it was lovely, Graham, to receive a card from you. A beautiful sentiment from you and your family. And then a little P.S. It's never coming home at the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. it's not. That much has been proven in 2022. <sighs> I guess you're right. But <laughs> Sorry. It's not, the, it's not the forum to tell me, Graham. That's the point. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you as well, Graham. Joining us, a man who didn't send me a Christmas card because he doesn't like sending me messages to me, and he just he's just so aware of the environmental impact of those things. Joe Lowry, hello. That's right, Ryan. <laughs> if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. I think was the sort of the thesis I took with Christmas cards not this my year. Animal. <laughs> yeah, clearly not Graham's plan. <laughs> Graham, so one one flaw I could see in your "It's Never Coming Home" roast is the 2023 World Cup which I am very afraid that it might, in fact, be coming home to England nah. with the Lionesses. That is something I've been spending a not insignificant amount of time thinking about with the U.S. Women's National Team and England and all the other really quality national teams out there. 2023 has me a little bit worried for that sentiment. Trust in Flacco. Trust in Flacco, Joe. That's my motto. I, I, I do not, but I hope that you're right. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. Wonderful stuff. All right. Plenty of lists and the questions to get to. No Mr. Taylor Rockwell here, by the way. Uh, just a threesome for us on this episode. Uh, before we get to the questions, though, Graham, uh, some news I caught today. Arsene Wenger apparently getting his statue at the Emirates. There's a few mm. player legend statues at the Emirates already. My question to you, 
how will Wenger be presented? Uh, is it going to be zipping up the jacket? Is it going to be jacket, arms yep. out at Old Trafford? <laughs> Could it be like a speech bubble that just says, I did not see that incident? Or maybe <laughs> they're going to do the classic, the plinth with him laying on the beach, resting on his hand. What do you think, Graham? There's a there's a meme that goes around Twitter. I might have used it the other day, actually, of him coming down the like the, the water slide, the shoot at a water yes. park or something. That's what I want, actually. Maybe it should be an actual a water feature, like a fountain, with him coming out of it. That's that's the answer, right? <laughs> Let's just hope it's not the same person who did Ronaldo's buster statue at the Madeira <laughs> Airport. Au contraire, Graham. I think we need as many of those statues and tattoos because clearly the the statue person did did Richarlison's back tattoo as well. I think we need as much of that in the soccer world as possible. I I will say I hope the statue is him zipping up the jacket or or attempting to do so while saying the World Cup should be every two years in some sort of speech bubble like Ryan's talking about. Then I think we're really on to something. (laughs) Oh, dear. I forgot all about all that shilling as well, uh, Joe. Uh, Maybe, okay, maybe this is going to be like a diorama, Joe. So I'm picturing a statue where he kicks a water bottle like he's on the sideline at Old Trafford and very frustrated. And it lands in the water slide where he's also coming out of the water slide. It's a bit meta as well. What do you think? I love it. Ryan, you should be working on this statue as some sort of consultant. You're in the wrong and, job. And we, can just, we can just split the fees three ways, four ways for Taylor. I'm, I think this is great. Ah, that's what I want on my resume. Statue designer for stadiums. Yeah, that's where I'm going. <laughs> very good, very good. But first, before I move on to my new career, let's answer some listener questions, shall we? Uh, the first one here coming from Kenneth Seiden. Hello, Kenneth. Uh, the big question, Graham, coming out of the World Cup, it's one we've kind of uh, danced around before. What player mm. will someone or some team pay over the odds for on the back of the World Cup. So we're looking ahead to this January window. Obviously, a player we've discussed before, Graham, is Cody Gakpo, who's already confirmed uh, his move from PSV to Liverpool. Who else do we think will be on the docket? And more importantly, who's going to maybe command a fee that's a bit too high? Mm. So there is so much talk about Enzo Fernandez at yep. the moment, which is yep. crazy, given that he only signed for his current club, Benfica, um, in the summer window. And he was very good at the World Cup. He won the, the Young Player of the, the, the Tournament Award and uh, importantly refrained from holding the trophy at his crotch in celebration. Take note, uh, Emmy Martinez. He was, he was very good, but nobody was talking about him as a 100 million euro player before the World Cup. And it's just nuts that after seven matches, clubs like Chelsea and Liverpool and Manchester United are reportedly thinking of activating his release clause. And he might be a very good player, but... Kenneth's Kenneth's question, the premise of the question is about who's going to overpay for a player in the back of the World Cup. So I think Enzo Fernandez is a a good candidate for that. And then one other suggestion, I I don't necessarily think someone is going to overpay for for this guy, but Sofian Amrabat, I I am wary of the links around him at the moment. He had an incredible World Cup, but he's 26. He's bounced around a few clubs, Feyenoord, Club Club Bruges. Uh, He's now at Fiorentina. And he has never shown in his career the standard that he performed at for Morocco in Qatar. So for all of a sudden, Liverpool and PSG and Tottenham to all be interested in him, apparently, uh, it's, a, it's a little bit of a red flag. Smart clubs don't really sign players on the basis of a handful of matches, even if they're very good matches at a World Cup. So as I say, I'm not sure someone's going to overpay for him, but if one of the big elite level clubs come in, comes in for him, that that might be a little bit of a panic buy. Graham, I love both uh, of those picks. I, I actually think Amrabat is is a good player and it's probably ready for a level above Fiorentina. I don't know that you're necessarily disagreeing with that. The hesitancy yeah. it comes from, you know, splashing a lot of cash on him 
Amrabat, though, at the World Cup with Morocco, his job was difficult, don't get me wrong, but it was also very simple in that Morocco defended. And his job was pretty straightforward in that you occupy space between the lines, you cut off service to the opposing playmaker, and you sort of shuffle six yards at a time, forward, backward, left, right, and, and you do that for 90 or 120 minutes, and then you win in penalties and you go on to the next round. So I, I don't think that teams should be signing. This is not a hot take. Teams should not be signing. I'm about based off of that sample size with Morocco. They should be going back through and, and watching him pass some and watching him move in midfield. But I, I am somewhat skeptical, as you are, about teams paying a bunch of money for him. And, and to do a beat on Fernandez because he was one of the, the two primary players that I had on my list, it is absurd to me that teams would be willing to pay $120 million. That would make him one – that's the reported release cost, by the way, $120 million euros, I believe. That would make him one of the most expensive players ever, one of the most expensive midfielders ever. I mean, Enzo Fernandez is an excellent player. I think he's phenomenal. I think he will have an excellent career in Europe and be there for a very long time. I'm just not sure that we should be paying $120 million euros for a midfielder. I'm not sure you can justify that cost when you could go out and sign an Amrabat who might not give you the same. And I know I just kind of spoke against him slightly in in, in what I said, <laughs> but you could go out and sign Amrabat who would give you you know 85% of the production of an Enzo Fernandez, and that last 15% is important. But is it worth 80 million extra euros? I I doubt it. So I, I don't know. I'm very curious to see what club is going to sign Fernandez. I'm sure. Fernandez will be good wherever he goes, whether he's at Benfica or whether he does make a move this window or in the summer or whatever that looks like. I'm sure he will be a key player. I just question if spending that much money on him is the right thing to do. Graham, you noted in uh, in your response that clubs shouldn't buy players based on a handful of games at a tournament. You're basically disparaging Real Madrid's entire transfer policy for many <laughs> years there. <laughs> Indeed, so they bought... Mesut Ozil after 2010, wasn't it? At that World Cup where yeah. he was excellent for, for, for Germany. And then James Rodriguez after 2014. I guess you could argue that both of those players, they were maybe going to get a big move anyway. And I think the comparison I would draw with this World Cup would be Cody Gakpo. There's, there was so much chat about him in the summer anyway. You go to the World Cup, he has a good tournament there, which just kind of reinforces what clubs already knew about him. I think that's where it's okay when, when there is a, a, a player whose stock is lifted at a World Cup, but they still had a, a high stock before the tournament. That's essentially what Cody Gakpo did. But someone like Armabat, who just was not on the radar of some of the clubs he's he's been linked with now, like PSG, like Liverpool, that's slightly different. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know who Real Madrid are going to splash the cash on from this tournament. Maybe it is Armabat for 100 million euros. Sure, why not? Can, can I add <laughs> one more so. player to this mix? I'd yeah. like to add Alexis McAllister, yeah, who I think is, is a good player. He's 24, playing for Brighton. He's a name that a lot of folks who, who watch the Premier League regularly knew of. This was the most that I'd ever seen of him in this particular tournament. I thought he had a good tournament. But apparently Tottenham and Chelsea and Arsenal are interested. And I think they might end up paying a bit too much. I don't think McAllister is quite the level of a lot of the other top-tier attackers in the Premier League. I think he is brilliant for Argentina because he covers and he can do work that elevates Messi to an even higher level. And then, of course, he has the skill on the ball to, to play make a little bit and do some really impressive things. But McAllister feels like a player to me yeah. that will get a bump in valuation after the World Cup. That is somewhat warranted, but probably not as warranted as the eventual cost will be. Mm -hmm. 
He has he has got Chelsea seventy million pounds on deadline yeah. day in January written all over him. He signed a new long term contract at Brighton the month before the World Cup, so he's tied down to twenty twenty five. So Brighton are gonna. I've read reports that they want at least fifty million pounds for him, and it feels like, as I say, Chelsea have have maybe got a panic buy in them in this window. What about um, Graham uh, Alexis's brother Kevin? Kevin McAllister always knows how to set a good trap. <laughs> Uh, uh-huh. you know, can protect the house at this time of year. What do you think? Yeah, I feel like he would be a good midfield anchor, as you say, protection in front in front of the back four. He's always valuable around about Christmas time. Sure, let's let's get Kevin McAllister a transfer to <laughs> uh, New York or Paris or wherever he's meant to be at this time of year. No. Yeah, not New York. He'll get lost there, but somewhere else I, I think would be good. Uh, Joe, one other name, uh, Morocco's uh, Azadine Unahi, who apparently yeah. is being chased by Newcastle and a few others, I think Leeds as well. I wonder if he might be overpaid for because Newcastle are among the bidders and there may be uh, the development of a Newcastle tax these days, more so than there has been in previous years. Yeah, and Taylor mentioned that on the show that, that he did with Graham yesterday, the Boxing Day review show about, you know, there is sort of a Premier League tax nowadays and you look at the spending and, and clubs in Europe aren't stupid. They understand that the Premier League teams are making more money than pretty much anybody else in the world right now, or they at least have more cash at their disposal, and Newcastle's certainly chief among them. I think teams will overpay for Unahi, not because he's not a good player. Again, I like Unahi, I like McAllister, Fernandez, and Amrabat, and all these players we've discussed, but I think a really smart club would have tried to get that move done from Angers before the World Cup. I think they would have tried to go in, they would have seen how good Unahi's numbers were, and they were really good before the World Cup, and he was good at the World Cup too, but that wasn't like a revelation if you've been paying attention to the bottom of Liga, which maybe we don't do. I know that sounds like, oh, very you know, high and mighty paying attention to the bottom of Liga, but you know, teams are paid to do that, right? Clubs and, and, and clubs pay players to pay attention to that stuff. Excuse me, they play they pay employees to pay attention to that stuff. Easy for mm-hmm. me to say. You know, they should have known about Onahi. So I think he will move. I think he will elevate his game, and he's still pretty young, I think twenty-two at this point in central midfield. But yeah, somebody's going to overpay because they couldn't get the deal over the line before the tournament started. One more suggestion is uh, Yao Felix. And there's a lot of chat about him on a loan deal in this this January window. It seems like Chelsea and Manchester United have been offered him for £8 million or euros. Um, I saw another report that the full package would be €16 million just for one half of the season and with no option to sign him permanently. And Felix had a good World Cup and, and it was an eye-opener for a lot of people who maybe haven't seen him play at that level for Atletico Athletic Madrid. And I think it highlighted or underlined just how he needs to leave Atletico Madrid. And I think that will happen in the January window. But if a club is paying that amount of money to sign him for half a season, then I don't think that's a particularly prudent piece of business either. Yeah, if if a club's playing sixteen million for half a season for a loan, Graham, I've got a bridge to sell them, I think, as well. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, not not ideal. All right, Kenneth, thank you very much for that question. Let's move on to one from Cameron L. Does the United States have the personnel and skills to play in the manner similar to how the Moroccan national team played at this year's World Cup? And would it be possible to have their level of success? Joe, so I guess the question here is, what would need to change for the US to uh, adapt like that? Is it all the players and the personnel? No, I think a lot of the players in the U.S. pool could function really well in a system like Morocco played. You think about Tyler Adams in the Amrabat role, shuffling back and forth and shielding and screening and winning the ball and starting counterattacks. 
he's great at that stuff. Now he he wants to go off the leash, right? He wants to run and press and do all that stuff. But Adams is mature enough as a player that I think he would function very well in that role. I think you could get McKenney and Musa and, and Aronson and Tim Weah and even someone like Christian Pulisic. I mean, Morocco have Hakim Ziyech. Why could the U.S. not get that same level of buy-in from Christian Pulisic? I'm not saying it's going to be easy to do a lot of this stuff, but I think the personnel isn't bad as far as this this fit goes. The challenge is so so. Yes, you can play this system. I, I really do believe the U.S. could play this system. They also have workmen like Striker. Just to jump in, Joe, what, could you just explain a little bit what the Moroccan system is as well? Yes. For the yes. Sorry. Good point. Good point, Ryan. So Morocco in this World Cup sat very, very deep. They absorbed a ton of pressure. Occasionally they would step forward, but but a lot of their game plan was built around that same sit deep, bunker, and hit on the break, and that's where we're going to be dangerous. Again, that sort of minimizes them, and it's a bit of a generalization, but I think that is what a lot of folks think of, and it's what I think of, when we talk about Morocco and how they played at the World Cup under Regregui. So that's the general style here. I think the U.S. could do that, and I do think it is theoretically possible, as Cameron asked at the end of, the, of this question, for them to have that same level of success. The challenge is, it just it, it's just so hard to do that, right? The odds are so incredibly low. Morocco's odds were astronomically low or high, depending on how you want to think about it, to make it as far as they did in this World Cup. They needed a perfect storm to make it to the World Cup semifinal. They had the longest odds for a team to make the semifinals over the last 40 years, according to, to sports odds history. So, the chances were almost zero that they would do what they did, and we will likely not see another team do what Morocco did. Maybe the World Cup format change in 2026 will throw a wrench in that prediction, but this stuff just doesn't happen. We don't see teams make these kinds of runs. You could be Morocco and play like Morocco. You could be the U.S. and play a little bit more expansive soccer and, and do some things differently and think about the sport differently if you're Greg Berhalter. But the odds of you making the World Cup semifinal are like approaching zero regardless uh, of the style that you choose to play. Hmm. Graham, your thoughts on this one? Yeah, my thoughts pretty much overlap with what Joe has said in terms of the profile of, of the team. Th- there is overlap there, so that, that Morocco played in a 4-3-3 uh, a lot at um, this World Cup. Obviously, at times they went to a back five, but the US technically could do that. Tyler Adams could be Amrabat, Musa could be Anahi, Pulisic could be Ziyech. Um, so yeah, there, there is reason to believe that system could work. The, the difference maker for Morocco, they were very good defensively and we spoke a lot about their defensive record and, and the US, even though it kind of fell apart in the Netherlands round of 16 game, before then we spoke about how the defence had been the, the best part of that team at, at the World Cup. So defensively as well, I think the US has the capability to, to sit deep and plug the gaps and frustrate opponents. But the other side of Morocco's game was their incisive, incisiveness on, on the break and in transition. And look, the US can can do that as well. In terms of the profile of, of the team, there's, there's, again, overlap there. But I, I just think in terms of execution, the US isn't quite there yet. Morocco, the intensity that they played with on and off the ball, again, I, I don't think the US is quite at that level. The sharpness of possession that Morocco had at, the, at that tournament was incredible. It was a, a higher level than any other team in, in, in Qatar. So the US would need to maybe do a better job of, I know the US can keep the ball, but just moving it a little bit quicker more naturally. Sometimes when I watched the US at the World Cup and they were moving it with pace, it was quite clear that it was it was a bit of effort for them to do that. They were consciously thinking of, we need to move the ball quickly. Yeah. Whereas Morocco, it just kind of came second nature to them. That's just how they move the ball. So maybe a few more reps for the US to get to that stage that Morocco are at. But Joe's right in, in terms of how... 
to replicate the Moroccan success. If Morocco played another World Cup tomorrow, the, the chances are they would not make the semi-finals again. They would get knocked out. Mm. That's just how that's just how knockout football works. So even if the US were to have a carbon copy of what Morocco did at this tournament, there's no guarantee that they would make the the final four. Yeah, I'm just not sure that style equates to success necessarily, unless you are. Well, I don't even need to put a caveat on that. I'm not. I'm not really sure that we know. Maybe in tournament football, it's different, and being a little bit more defensive has value. I'm just not sure that style equates to success in soccer. Really, I think maybe in the past I would have thought that more. But really, we've learned the one thing we've learned about club soccer at this point is that teams that spend the most money tend to have the best teams and the most success. The same principle can be applied to the international game, even if teams aren't you know paying to have players in their in their international teams. You know, it's it's about the teams that have the best players. Like, there's a reason why it's so difficult for teams that aren't in Europe or South America to make the World Cup semifinals. Is because they just don't have the same level of talent as a lot of the teams in Europe and in South America. So, I, I think maybe stylistic tweaks are useful at times, and I certainly think tactics are important. Still, I think the U.S. drilling down on their final third patterns is is maybe one of the things that could most elevate them ahead of 2026. But really, they just need more good players to increase their odds. I'm not sure that switching to a more defensive system is going to be the secret sauce that the U.S. is missing. Yeah, Graham, you mentioned the intensity and the, and the, and the speed of moving the ball. And do, do, do you think it's a case of that could be that, adapt, uh, that adaptation could be made with more reps? Or is it a case of talent or something more cultural? I certainly think the US is, is missing a deep-lying playmaker. That's the limitation of, of Tyler Adams' game, isn't it? That On the ball, he's maybe not as good as you would need someone to be at the elite level. But then I was trying to, I was looking through the Morocco midfield, the, the three that they that they played with the Nahi and Amrabat and I think it was Amala, who, who was the third central midfielder. And I wouldn't really say any of those three are, are traditional deep-lying playmakers. Maybe Amrabat did that role at the World Cup, but I would say his real strength was in carrying the ball rather than than playing line-breaking passes, and that is something that Tyler, Tyler Adams could do. So yes, to a certain extent, I think the reps make a difference. As I say, when the US were playing at pace, it didn't really feel all that fluid. It felt like, it didn't feel like they could keep it up for full 90 minutes because that isn't their, their default setting, whereas with Morocco, that was their default default setting. But talent-wise, it would help if the US had that, that deep-line playmaker who is comfortable with the ball and can play those line-breaking passes. All right, Cameron, thank you very much for that question. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're talking about the USMNT's ultimate utility player, and you'll see why very shortly. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think... 
I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We come back with a question from Mr. Ira Jersey. Hello, Ira. Uh, He says, if you had to choose one player who had minutes for the USMNT at the 2022 World Cup, who could play all 10 outfield positions at the 2026 World Cup, who would it be and why? Joe, my mind goes to Tyler Adams, but I'm not sure that's the correct answer. What do you think? I love I love the Tyler Adams shout, Ryan. So I have a I have a lot of different answers to this question. I think I have four. He was not my my ultimate choice, but I have a few, you know, sort of secondary choices. And, and, and Tyler Adams, I think, would turn the US almost into Morocco or into a team that, that approaches soccer very differently and, and defends a lot, and that can be effective. So Tyler Adams is a good pick. My actual answer, though, is Weston McKenney. His his mixture of height and quickness and speed and aerial ability and skill on the ball comfort in the box, all of those attributes are valuable for any player. But I think if you spread Weston McKinney around, he can operate as a striker. You can cross the ball into him. He can head the ball in. He can obviously play as a central midfielder. He could play as a number six. He could play as a center back. He could play as a, as a fullback. I think he could do a lot of the jobs. I don't love him as a winger, but hey, Mario Mandzukic, target winger time, I guess, for, for this Weston McKinney U.S. team. He basically already played. Mm-hmm. Every position coming up with Schalke, I know that feels like a long time ago, and I don't know if you guys would remember, but as he was trying to break into the Bundesliga, he played as a central midfielder, he played as an eight, he played as a six, he played as a, as a striker late in games, he played as a center back, he played as a, as a wide player. He's done pretty much all of this stuff already, so Weston McKinney, for his build and his mixture of skills, I think I'm going with team... U- oh, can this still be USMNT, United States McKinney national team? I, I, guess, I guess that's what we're going for here. <laughs> that certainly works. Graham, who's your pick? So I had three suggestions. Tyler Adams was was one of them. We've seen some versatility from Adams and him playing right back. He's played right back at times, yeah. hasn't he? Yep. At, at club level. And I know he's not the best passer of the ball, but nonetheless, you, you can have him in pretty much any position in central midfield. And um, I guess he's kind of got defensive chops in, in terms of positional awareness. So you, you could perhaps play him at centre-back in an emergency kind of crisis position role. Um, but my stealth candidate was Sergino Dest. I also had Wes McKenney, so Wes McKenney might actually be my pick for all the reasons that Joe said. But my, my stealth candidate is, is Sergino Dest and that yes. he can play on both sides of the defence. He's played as a winger for AC Milan this season, so there's already like four positions out of the team that he can play in. He he is perhaps good enough on the ball to play in in central midfield. The the two big questions would be 
central defence. Obviously, he doesn't have a great deal of he- <laughs> of uh, of height, but nonetheless, maybe he's a Fabio Cannavaro kind of central defender. He's he's good in the ball, as I say. He does he plays in defence at, at right back, so you would you would hope he'd have some sort of defensive chops. And then obviously, striker isn't really his position, but. Uh, does it really matter who's playing at number nine for the oh, U.S. men's so national good. team at this point? Uh, so, <laughs> so maybe Des can do a decent job there as well. So yeah, Adams McKenney, I think is probably the right answer. But as I say, stealth candidate, Sergino Dest. I love Graham. I love uh, the Dest shout on this one. I have him on my list as well in in my other choices category. I just love the picture of eleven Sergino Dest trying to all avoid passing to each other at the same time. Like who can do the most? <laughs> who can do the most FIFA Street style skills over the course of ninety minutes in stoppage time? I, I would love to watch that. So in terms of pure entertainment, Dest is my answer to this question. Ultimately, I think McKenney is is the best one I can come up with. The other sleeper one that I've got is Tim Weah. I think he's played as a striker before. He's played on both wings. He's played as a as an outside back. So you can basically get to to you know if you're in a four three three five positions there. I think he could play as a number eight. I don't think he would do a great job, but I think he would do a fine job. And then he's got a, enough athleticism and height that I think he could sweep him behind as a center back. And he'd probably be okay in goal as well. I'm not saying it's ideal, but Tim Weah is another one of my sleeper picks here. Joe, it, the, the question was for 10 outfield players, but if you had to include the goalkeeper as well, would that change your answer? Oh, yeah. I didn't even I didn't even realize we weren't including the goal. I think McKenney would do a fine job in goal. I don't even really imagine McKenney using his hands. I kind of imagine him just heading every ball away with his <laughs> hands to the side, kind of like a penguin. Or his wand. Graham, if we can use some, some Harry Potter magic in here, oh, then it's Weston <laughs> McKenney hands down. But I think Weston McKinney as a goofy, Igita-style goalkeeper would just make this team complete. I like that. No gloves, just a, a, a photographer's jersey in his hand to catch the ball occasionally. <laughs> no gloves, just vibes. Just vibes. <laughs> just vibes, indeed. What about Tenjiro Reynas, Joe, just to round this question out? Would they last the 90 minutes? Maybe that's too mean thing to say, but they'd be a short <laughs> team. Worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah, I think, what is the number of players that you have to get down to before the, the match is sort of ruled off is it seven I don't remember what it is but between injuries and maybe some anger towards other versions of Gio Reyna that won't pass in the ball yeah that team might not make it the full 90 minutes yeah it's down to 14 hamstrings I think is the FIFA rule I'm not sure I'll have to check that one um Ira thank you very much for that question let's move to one from Chris Sowers who says can you explain how youth development is different in England or Scotland versus the United States I understand that professional clubs are more involved in development but what does that mean do payers play less or not at all to join a youth team for example oh Chris yes they do play uh, pay much less (laughs) indeed uh so I'm fairly familiar with both systems in the US system Joe it's essentially pay to play isn't it you join a local club or an academy and for certainly in the regions I've seen it, they operate as an independent business as such and the best players can get picked off by um, MLS academies or even foreign scouts but that's the way it kind of is um, so uh, and it, it works a little differently in the UK system but Joe just just as a, a summary of the US system have I pretty much got it right there I think so. So part of this depends on what level like and how good you are as yeah. a player. So I believe there might be a straggler or two in MLS. Ryan, you probably know this better than I do. But but basically, if you're in an MLS academy, you're not paying. You're not paying to be there. Yeah. They, those are, are fully paid for for you. Your housing, if, if you need that. I mean, a, a lot of the resources are going to be there and provided for you. You're not going to have to pay. If you're, if you're playing for an academy in your local city that's not an MLS city, or if you're in an MLS city that and, and you're not quite good enough for that team or just aren't on that team, then you will be paying in, in most situations. Now, that's not universally true, 
I know for a fact that there are a number of academies around the U.S. that are not MLS affiliated that you can get a scholarship and, and you won't have any costs associated with that process. But generally speaking, because there are a limited number of professional clubs in the U.S. and the pathway to the pro game is fractured, to, to put it lightly, uh, you're going to end up paying if you're at really any club outside of the, the, the best of the best in the United States. Yeah, that's quite right. And you're quite right, Joe, that the players who are picked up by MLS academies do not pay for the privilege to do so. That's paid for by the clubs themselves. Now, Graham, um, if, we, if we're talking about uh, players who will join a youth team, suddenly at a local level in the UK, the pay-to-play system doesn't exist like it does in the US. I think that's no. safe to say. Like when I was a kid, I would pay the equivalent of sort of one or two dollars a week to play. Whereas in the yeah. States, I know there are certain systems where it's many thousands of dollars per year to uh, to play yes. a full season, Graham. Yeah, so 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 that concept of, of paying to play is completely alien to me. And as you referenced there, Ryan, was, was not my experience at all. I, I was trying to think back to when I played as, as, a, as a kid and as a, a, a teenager, I played for two teams. I played for Concordan Colts and Dunblane FC, and they were both terrible and I was terrible. But thinking back <laughs> to how that worked, I think my parents paid something like £5 a week for me to go to training twice and then play on a, play on a Saturday morning. And that was really just to subsidize the purchase of equipment, things like cones and 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 um, bibs pies. and foot and, and pies, of course, <laughs> and uh, and and shirts and and what have you. That it, it it wasn't really the coaches are not paid by that. It was just for incidentals, I guess that that amount of money. And if if you're registered with the lo- local association, which most most youth teams are, in fact, I'm not even sure you'd be able to operate if you weren't then they pay for everything through the, the National Association. That That is essentially, when you look at, for me, the Scottish FA, um, when you look at their their outlay, their expenses every year, where their money goes, that's where it goes. Almost all of the money goes to the grassroots of the game. They they pay for, for kids to play. And, and my question with the way things seem to be in American youth soccer, and, and I have written about this and I am kind of familiar with the pay to pay to 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 play debate and everything like that like if, if your soccer isn't isn't paying for the grassroots to operate what what is their purpose because isn't that essentially what a national association is is that not what they're, they're paying for so as i say that that concept is just completely alien to me and, and to just a little bit more detail on how the scottish system works you join a youth team you don't really have to pay to join that youth team scouts would then look at those youth teams and you would just move up the the pyramid you know if you were at the yeah. top you'd be at celtic or rangers but players at that level everyone's paying the same or, or everyone's kind of paying nothing at all really besides the incidentals five pounds a week or something from your parents so it's just a very very different system in that regard yeah and to be fair to the u.s system graham there are certain overheads which aren't considered in the uk system like uh, flights for some games, if you reach a certain level, you might fly to games, for example, and there's a bit more travel involved. Uh, but also, mm. let's not forget that most of these academies in the US operate as businesses and they are profitable. Uh, and they certainly are if yeah. they run well. So there is that element to it. And But in terms of how it works in the UK, basically, the the level that Graham and I played at, it was yeah you, a few bucks a week to play to cover um, yeah uh, the, the gold nets and stuff like that and pies and oranges at half time that kind of thing <laughs> but the players who are good enough to get picked up by the academy system enter a sort of a whole new board game um so the, the uk football academy system um, certainly in england is run by the english fa uh, and the efl the english football league so those those bodies um work very closely and oversee 
uh, the academy pro- um, uh, academies that are run by clubs, basically. And in 2012, the Premier League brought in the Elite Player Performance Plan, the handily acronymed EPPP, across the entire professional English game. So that was a long-term strategy designed to advance the Premier League and its youth development. So they wanted to increase the quality and number of uh, homegrown players rising through the ranks, as is their blurb. So uh, the EPPP provides up to 10,000 matches and 212 festivals and tournaments to clubs all across the UK at all age groups. And they set up competitions like the Premier League 2, the Professional Development League, the Premier League Cup, uh, Premier League International Cup, various under 18 um, leagues as well, basically to bridge the gap from youth soccer to senior competitions to try and, to try and make that um, that transition a little easier for the players who are good enough to do so. And every club's academy has a ranking from one to four. So the best club academies are category one and the less good ones are category four. But those rankings are never officially released um, because basically every category one club would have uh, millions of um, applications to join them so but that's like an internal ranking so there are academies that are better than others but Graham um, the the TLDR here is that the clubs fund and run the academy programs but they are very much overseen at close quarters by the FA in in, in England certainly does that ring true for you? Yeah, pretty pretty much. I think it's very similar for for Scotland. We maybe have a little bit more mixing of the pyramids, maybe just due to the fact that a smaller country, we don't have as many teams. So on on a couple of occasions, my team Dunblane, we we played Celtic and Rangers academy teams, and of course they absolutely thumped us. We played one at Stirling <laughs> University. I think we got beat eight nil in, in in that game. I would really like to see a team sheet if there were any players who actually went I was on ask, to. to yeah. P- yeah, I don't know is the answer. I can't remember. We, you know, you don't get handed a team sheet round before the start of the game when you're thirteen. But I, I'd really like to know that. But yeah, there's a little bit of mixing of of the academy teams and 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 the youth level teams i don't know if that happens in uh, in america but my i am um, i asked the question about us soccer i don't know if anyone actually has the the information but i i would actually if someone does have the information on that please please tweet me because i am interested where where does us soccer's money go how how much of it does go to the to the grassroots are they subsidizing youth teams and if and if they're not what what are they doing with the money is us soccer profitable is it meant to be a non-profit how, how does that whole situation work graham graham you got to pay for greg baralter's jordans come on that's that's of a course of course and he's, i don't know that there's enough money left to subsidize yeah yeah you yeah. get it graham you're, you're with me chuck blazer's cats didn't feed themselves graham okay oh yikes <laughs> yeah that flat didn't pay for itself indeed it did not uh thank you very much chris for that question very interesting one it was let's take a quick break when we come back a few more including one about leo messi coming shortly this episode is brought to you by Michelob ultra the official beer sponsor of the nba want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob ultra courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive nba prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an nba game and more head over to michelobultra.com slash courtside to learn more hey folks this is taylor from the total soccer show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early there are teams that will leave that business very late and there are teams that will operate in between but no matter what it's going to be a chaotic situation there's going to be 
offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's go to Joshua Bishop for this question. Messi at this World Cup just passed was amazing to watch and you could say that Argentina wouldn't have even been in the final if it wasn't for him. Apologies if this is an oversimplified question, says Joshua. But where was this Messi at the end of his Barcelona days? He's specifically thinking about Roma, Liverpool and Bayern. Oh, where do we start with this one, Graham? Because it's been a criticism of Messi for many years, that he's not the kind of player that can drag a team over the line, like we might have seen with Ronaldo with Portugal at Euro 2016. He didn't necessarily drag uh, Argentina over the line in 2014. But it's also a difficult metric to put on a player. Argentina are in the World Cup for seven games, and that's rather different than playing for Barcelona your, your entire career up to that point. And the game is played at a very different level at international soccer as well. And then the top end of the mm. domestic game. So what, what what do you make of this question, Graham? So first of all, that that thing you mentioned there about Messi not dragging teams over the line, I think that was a criticism of him for Argentina. Um, if anyone was criticising him for uh, for that, uh, for Barcelona yeah. over the years, I'm not totally sure what they were watching because he did that pretty much every yeah, single fair. week. But I, 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 I take issue with the notion that Messi went missing in even those big matches that that, that Joshua um, references there in his question, that he went missing in those big matches towards the end of his time at, at Barcelona. So I went back to those games um, because sometimes your memory of these games, that was a number of years ago now, I remember I remember him playing well in a lot of those games. And so I went back to see if, if that was the truth, if that was reality. So the Liverpool match, where Liverpool come back in the Champions League semi-final and, and win, I think, 4-0 in, in that yep. second leg, 
in the first leg, he scores twice in the first leg, and Barcelona win that first leg 3-0, and he is absolutely sensational in that game. So I don't really think you can pin it on him that Barcelona end up going out of that tie. Then you have the the Champions League. This this one isn't mentioned in, in Joshua's question, but the Champions League tie, Barca lost to PSG quite heavily in his final season there. I think PSG win 4-1 at Camp Nou. Messi scores home and away in that tie. So he he has he kind of pulled his weight in, in a lot of these games. He scored 31 goals and, and 38 goals in his last two seasons as a Barcelona player. So he was the one holding back the tide for Barca, I think. Yeah. And then he left and that wave just completely engulfed them. At, at the World Cup, to, to compare it to what we've seen recently from Messi, at the World Cup, Messi was as good as we've seen him since Barcelona, I think. That was because he had freedom because it wasn't entirely, and we spoke about this a number of times during the World Cup, it wasn't entirely down to him. So Scaloni was smart in the way that he set up that team. There are plenty other players. We've spoken about Enzo Fernandez already on this show, Alexis McAllister. There are plenty other players who contributed to that to that Argentina team. And yes, maybe Argentina don't make the final without Messi, but I still think they do relatively well at this World Cup without without Messi. Whereas towards the end of his time at Barcelona, it really felt like Messi was burdened by how much pressure was was on him. That team was kind of falling apart around him. You saw what happened when you took him out of that team and the drop-off that Barcelona endured after that. And he he wasn't having a, a good time. You look at his body language in that last season. He's doing a lot of moping. You compare that to how he was at the World Cup and there was always a smile on, on his face. So maybe that affected him in, in some way. But I... I still think Messi turned up in pretty much every big match at the end of his of his of his Barcelona days. The one exception was maybe the the eight two Bayern Munich game where I went back and and Messi wasn't very influential at all in that game. But, but when you're talking about that much damage being do, being done to a team, Barcelona conceding eight goals in that game, I'm not really sure Messi could have done anything to keep that house standing. It's 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 not really. On him, so I think most of the time he did keep that house standing, but just because it did collapse in the end, I don't think is down to him. Yeah, is that is that fair, Joe? What do you think of that one? Was Messi, uh, you know, he couldn't be rearranging the uh, the deck chairs on the Titanic there necessarily in some of those games, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's well said, Ryan. I love that. I was thinking duct tape on the boat that's very much leaking, but at least there's enough duct tape to cover most of the leak, and it's only leaking slowly. I mean, so so the games that that. Uh, Joshua mentions in this question come in 2018, 2019, and 2020. So it's it's the 4-1 win for Barcelona in the first leg against Roma in the Champions League quarterfinals, and then a 3-0 loss in the second leg that sends Barcelona out. Then the following year, Graham mentioned the Liverpool uh, the, the Liverpool games, 3-0 win in the first leg for Barcelona, 4-0 loss in the second leg in the semifinals of the Champions League, and then you have Barca-Bayern 8-2 in, in 2020 in the Champions League quarterfinals. And that match was atrocious for Barcelona. So, yeah, yeah, there, obviously there are issues here with Barcelona, but I would not put much of any of that blame, if any of it at all, on Leo Messi. The team that he was on, that Barcelona team, in, in throughout you know, 2018, 19, and, and 20, was just not up to their classic Barcelona standards. They're not even as good, I think, as, as this current Barcelona team without Messi. That, that's how bad I think the core was relative to what we're looking at now and what we'd seen sort of in their heyday with Messi, with we, you know a number of different stars around him as well. The team that lost to Roma had Ivan Rakitic and Samuel Antiti and, and Nelson Semedo and Sergio Roberto and an aging Andres Iniesta. Not that any of those players are bad, but 
are they really Champions League caliber players or Champions League winning caliber players? I don't know about that. The team that lost to Liverpool was also unbalanced with way too much burden on Messi. Philippe Coutinho never really worked in that team, in, in my view at least, in, in 2019. Then you had Vidal and Rakitic and Busquets along with Coutinho, and I'm just not sure that's the support you need for Messi. And then it was a similar look in, in 2020. The Argentina team that won the World Cup, I think, was better suited to play with Messi. And then just winning a World Cup is a different beast, and, and Graham kind of talked about that a little bit as well. And then other additions of Barcelona with Messi were better. So I don't think it was necessarily his fault. I think it was a lot of the mismanagement and poor player identification and maybe even poor tactics around Messi that sort of led to that decline in, in a lot of those major Champions League defeats. And the, and the other part of this is just that like in a one game or, or oftentimes in, in two game ties in soccer, weird stuff happens. And, and Barcelona was probably still the better team over Roma. I don't know if they were the better team over Liverpool back in 2019, but sometimes just crazy stuff happens and sometimes crazy stuff happens three times in a row. So you combine that with the squad that Barcelona had, and I think that sort of gets you most of the way to the yeah. explanation. When you look at the Barcelona team that lost 8-2 to Bayern Munich, which was only a couple years ago, like that, yeah. feels, that feels a lifetime ago. That was only two seasons ago. They have their back four as Jordi Alba, Clement Longley, Gerard Piquet, and Nelson Semedo. Jordi Alba is fading at this point. Clement Longley is, has never been all that good. Gerard Piquet is now retired, and Nelson Semedo plays for... Is he, he is at Wolves now, isn't he? Then you have Vidal and Sergio Roberto in that midfield. And then you have Luis Suarez up front with, with Messi. Of course, a legend, Luis Suarez, a brilliant player. But I went back and looked, and he'd only just recovered from injury. He played this match essentially unfit. So it's not really surprising that this team got thumped 8-2 by Bayern Munich, who, of course, this season go on to win the Champions League. They were the best team in, in Europe in this season. So I'm really not sure what Messi could have done to, to stop any of that. All right, Joshua, thank you very much for that question. Let's get to one last one from Kevin Tolley, who says, The World Cup final has been dominated by very few teams. However, the third place playoff game hasn't. It's been much more diverse with over 20 separate countries being represented and 16 separate winners. The only teams uh, I see, says Kevin, that have repeated as winners are Germany, France, Brazil and now Croatia. It's also much more free scoring with 14 of the games ending with three or more goals. So Kevin's question, is the third place playoff game a more representative game of what the World Cup is all about? Is it the MLS shield of the competition, oh boy. By which I mean it's more meaningful than the final and yet terribly underrated. Joe, um, I'm not sure if this game is more representative of what the World Cup is all about, to be honest, because when you look at the go the, the goals, for example, 14 in the games ending with three or more goals, it's probably because there's zero pressure on this game. Uh, often <laughs> not vibes. even first, there's a lot of vibes. It's not, not first choice players a lot of the time in this game. And, I can't really buy the MLS Shield comparison here because ultimately, Joe, this is a meaningless game for me. Both teams have been knocked out of the competition. That's why they're in this game. For me, it doesn't really serve a purpose. So I can't really align it with the Shield where there's genuine competitive effort that's gone into the reward there. Agree. Agree with all of that, Ryan. So I am here, so to get to, to Kevin's sentiment here, I'm here for the third place playoff game being entertaining. At the same time, I'm not sure that I'll, I'll ever watch one. I mean, maybe I will. Maybe the U.S. <laughs> will be one in one at some point. I know, I know it's going to be entertaining. And by all accounts, according to what Graham said, and talking to Graham and reading his Twitter feed, the one from this year was entertaining too. But I, I still don't feel compelled enough to actually watch it. And, and 
think there's a reason why it has less coverage because, Ryan, to your point, the teams are already out, right? So I don't see it as being more representative of what the World Cup is about. I guess this depends very heavily on what your subjective opinion of of what the World Cup is all about is. For me, it's about winning the World Cup, and I'm guessing most other people would echo that, but I can see. I can see some of what Kevin's getting at here with his argument of you get a more diverse group of teams that has a more global kind of emphasis. I can see that idea, and I can see people thinking about the World Cup in that way. I'm just not really one of those people, And, and, and sort of going back through the teams that have played in the third place playoff game, I'm not really sure that the pool of teams has been that much more diverse, at least in recent years. I'm not saying it, it it wasn't in the past, but this year was definitely unexpected, I think, with Croatia and Morocco. I, did, I would never have expected that in the top four. But in the last four World Cups, we're looking at Belgium, England, the Netherlands, Brazil, Germany, Uruguay, and Portugal. Those are all teams that you would expect to be, or, or you wouldn't be shocked to see in the top four of a World Cup. Maybe I'm fudging it a bit there with Uruguay, but I think you get the idea so I don't know. I struggle with this one. I'm not sure I agree ultimately with what Kevin's saying, but I, I think it's good that there is an entertaining game in the World Cup almost every year. It's just unfortunate that that one is the one that matters the least, maybe the least, maybe not quite the least, but it's close to the bottom. Yeah, Joe, your assessment that I'm here for it being entertaining, but I'm not going to watch one. It's exactly how I feel about Harry Potter, funny enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, you and Weston McKinney won't see eye to eye on that, Ryan, I guess, but... <laughs> Indeed. Uh, Graham, any uh, diverging thoughts on this one? Yes, yeah, so I, th- I think, um, not really diverging thoughts, but I, I think the, the, the context with the third place playoff is quite important. So the World Cup final is the most meaningful match in, in soccer. There's, there's not a more meaningful match, both in the, the men's and the women's game. So I think that's, that's maybe why I view the third place playoff match with such a lack of enthusiasm to me that the third place playoff match is the community shield of international soccer right it is it is a match that if your team is in it or if you're playing in it you want to you want to win it but no one is no one is aiming to be in in that match and so nobody is too crushed if, if if you lose it and that obviously makes it very different to the final which is the most high pressure high stakes match in in soccer so imagine the day before the champions league final you had the community shield that, that was the lineup. You had the Community Shield, then the Champions League final. That Community Shield game, while it might be fun, and 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 so I think there is something in that because the pressure is off. And this this year we had we literally had an A B test with that with Croatia and Morocco because we had the group stage game which was horrendously cagey where both teams kept it tight and drew nil nil. And then in the third place match between the same teams, we had two goals in the first ten minutes. So quite clearly there you can see you can see a difference. So you have a fun match before the World Cup final and having them side by side like that just does no favours to the third place match, the Community Shield match. And I think that that context is why I will never really be swayed from my opinion that it's not all that worthwhile and maybe we should just allow the players some extra time off. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with that, Graham. And I, I do agree that I still don't want to watch one. England was in one uh, in 2018 and I don't think I watched it. And we cover soccer for a living. So that says a lot. (laughs) And you're English. And I'm English. Indeed. For all my faults, maybe that's one of them. Kevin, thank you very much for that question. And thank you, everybody, for submitting your questions for this one. TotalSoccerShow.com slash questions if you want to get involved. But in the meantime, Joe Lowry, thank you very much for your expertise as always. Yeah, right back at you, Ryan. And Graham Ruffin, pleasure as always. Good, sir. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. P.S. It's never coming home. Ah. <sighs>
you've really bookended this one, Graham. Thank you very much for that. And Lister, thank you for joining us on this journey as always. We'll be back on the feed very shortly, but for now, bye!